Many of you know uh, that I officiate high school sports. It's one of my, I don't know if you might call it a hobby or a love right now. And um, currently, uh, I'm in the throes of the softball and baseball season. Actually, I, I don't know if it's going to happen, but tomorrow, uh, if you want to watch, I will be at the Falls, um, plays uh, softball against Little Fork tomorrow, uh, 3 o'clock, so I'll be down there uh, officiating that game, although I'm kind of leaning towards it's not going to happen just the way the rain has fallen, and I don't think the field will be ready, but we'll see. But most people think that uh, the job of an official, my job especially, is to call balls and strikes or outs on base. Well, that is most assuredly true. That's kind of one of the main things. Um, there are other things that I have to do as an official to, or to efficiently umpire a game. They're called mechanics. Uh, and a lot of times you'll see, if you watch any television of baseball games, softball games, um, you'll see umpires be in certain positions at certain times, have certain hand signals, um, be running to a certain spot. And the reason they do that, and the reason I do that, is so I can have an accurate view of what's going on as the game is played. If I don't have that viewpoint, then there is this the possibility that I could miss a call, that I could miss a tag, that I could miss uh, a viewpoint where a runner could be out or safe and could potentially uh, affect the game. So I have to practice good mechanics, and the State High School League every year uh, has a mechanics-focused time where you can, uh, right now, more, uh, you can do either online or show up in person, and they run through different softball mechanics, baseball mechanics you can use as an umpire. What's a good position to take when you're behind the plate? What's a good position to take when you're behind second base or third base, and so on and so forth? When you practice good mechanics, most oftentimes your calling of the game is going to be good. It's going to be fair. It's going to be accurate. It's going to be the way it's supposed to be. And therefore, the game is going to be officiated with precision. If I don't do that, if umpires don't embrace those mechanics, then the game's going to go very poorly for me and for them. Well, this morning, as we consider Hebrews chapter 13, uh, we're going to not to look at mechanics of umpiring, but more on the side of racing and running the race of faith. So my challenge to you this morning, I think what the challenge the author of Hebrews is laying before us is that you and I need to embrace the requirements of an efficiently run race of faith. Embrace the requirements of an efficiently run race of faith. Chapter 13 is going to get into more of the, the nitty-gritty of what do we do as believers as we run the race of faith? And I want to give you five actions from this passage of Scripture that you and I can fulfill in order for us to run an efficient or a clean race. First one comes from verse 1 is that we are loving to our brothers and sisters in Christ. This is let brotherly love continue. Notice with me that this is not an optional action. That word continue is an imperative. Okay, it's a command. It means to continue to exist, remain, to last, to persist. The very implication of the word means there's no end to its activity. So the author of Hebrews is saying, let brotherly love continue, and you can stop whenever you want to. No. He said, let brotherly love continue and continue and continue and continue. And if that isn't enough, the word itself, if the word itself isn't enough, the command form implies that there's no opt-out clause. 
You know, people like to opt out of things today, right? Whether they're contracts, if you're a sports player, or um, other obligations. But the command here says there's no way of opting out. We are to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. And also let me point out, and this is not as evident in our English language as it is in the original language, but the, the verb here, continue, is, is in the singular form. And it points to each believer's individual responsibility to obey this command. So not just corporately, as, as a body of believers as we are today, but individually, we're supposed to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. We say, well, Pastor, what kind of love is this? What's a love that comes from a deep affection for each other? The word brotherly love there is the word where we get our word Philadelphia. Okay, Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Although at times you go there and it's not quite that. So trust me, I used to live near there. Uh, brotherly love, it, the word means to a loving affection among family members. And that term has been taken and, and uh, Christians took that term to extend it to brothers and sisters in Christ. So beyond just a family do now brothers and sisters, believers in the family of God. So what is he saying? He's saying the same love that a family normally has for each other is the same type of love that is to characterize the family of God. It's been here before and still needs to be here now. Let me illustrate it this way. Um, I have a brother and two sisters, so there's four of us in my family. And uh, let me be honest with you, we fought like cats and dogs growing up, okay? We did, um, especially me and my next oldest sister. Um, we butted heads. I'm sure that never happened in your family. I'm sure you were all nice kids with each other. But we butted heads, and, you know, we, we had disagreements. And as we've gotten older, things have gotten a little better, but let's also be honest with yourselves, even as you get older, you still have things about your brothers and sisters that annoy you, that just get underneath your skin, that perhaps aren't wrong, but it's just they do something that you don't like, or they say something that you don't like, and that, that kind of characterizes my family a little bit. But we still love each other, right? That the annoyances, the, the minor irritations... Apart from those, that does not distract from our love for our siblings. I still love my sister Stacy. I still love my sister Sarah. I love my brother Eric. Do I have qualms with them, minor irritations that just annoy the snot out of me? Yes. But I still love them. I still want the best for them. I don't have any ill will towards them. Why? Because they're my brother and my two sisters. Well, that same type of love that, that loves another person in the family, minus, or not minus, excuse me, without regard for the minor irritations that perhaps exist, is the same love that you and I are to have for our brothers and sisters in Christ. No matter where they are, no matter at what time. And so the author of Hebrews says, let brotherly love, that, that, that same type of love keep going and going and going. It's, it's, it's the Energizer Bunny, if you will, commercial. It just keeps going and going and going. 
So that leads me to ask you a question this morning. Are you loving your brothers and sisters in Christ? And letting that love, as a love that describes a family love, <coughs> continue to go on and on and on. Hebrew, excuse me, Romans chapter 12, verse 10 says this, Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Yes, there are times that your brother and sister in Christ really just bugs you. There are times where you just have disagreements and struggles. There's times where you just don't want to talk to your brother or sister in Christ. I get that. But despite those minor irritations, despite those things that exist, are you and I still faithfully loving our brothers and sisters in Christ? No matter where they are. Whether they be in Ukraine, whether they be in the United States, whether it be right here in the falls, are we still faithfully loving our brothers and sisters in Christ? Because that's, that's an aspect, that's a requirement of a well-run race. If we're going to run the race well, we're going to finish well, we have to love each other. Look out for each other. Care for one another. Be affectionate towards one another as Jesus commanded us to do. And as Paul in Romans 12.10 backs that up. Are you and I loving each other in Christ? Or are we being subjective with that love? Notice, notice he doesn't say, you can show love to one person, not to another. You can, you can be discrimination. You can practice discrimination with your love. No, he doesn't say that. He says, let brotherly love continue to whoever in whatever situation. That's a requirement of a well-run race. Second requirement from verse 2 is that we are hospitable in all situations. Verse 2, do not forget to entertain strangers. For by doing so, some have unwillingly entertained angels. He says this is a responsibility we are not to forget. The word of forget means to be inattentive to. And he's using it, the author is, to urge his readers to remember their responsibility to be hospitable. Why does he need to remind us of that? I think it's because we easily forget. Right? Forgetting is an easy trap that we can fall into, and therefore it is our responsibility to remember, to fulfill that responsibility of being hospitable. Because with the pressures of our world today and our lives, we can easily forget that. And notice, he, notice to whom he says to be hospitable. He says to strangers. Our hospitality extends to those who are not familiar to us. That, that phrase, to entertain strangers, literally means love of strangers. It's a demonstration of love to a stranger who has no relationship with you. Let me, let me just kind of describe this from a biblical perspective. Uh, historically, the idea of hospitality is more important during New Testament times because there were not many places to stay outside of one's home. Let me read a quote to you from David Guthrie in his commentary on the book of Hebrews. He says this, In the environment of the early church, it was essential since alternative facilities for travelers were such that Christians would not choose to make use of them. Wayfar wayfarers, hostels, or hotels where they existed were notorious for immorality. But the New Testament concept of hospitality has a much wider application than this. He says, in the Middle East, hospitality is a means of friendship. 
To invite a person to a meal is to extend fellowship to him. It is against this background and the exhortation, do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, that this must be considered. Unquote. So he's saying there that the hospitality was more or less to all. Christians were very discriminatory against where they stayed. Especially the, the common places were not very good morally. So they had to off, open up, find someone's home to stay at and didn't have the hotels that we have today. And notice he says, by doing so, some have unwittingly entertained strangers. Perhaps using Abraham in Genesis 18 as an example, the author of Hebrews shows what it looks like to show consistent hospitality to those who are not familiar. If you go back to Genesis 18, we won't take time to turn there. Moses, or excuse, not Moses, Abraham sees these three men come towards his tent, and he automatically runs and invites them in. Tells his wife, Sarah, to go prepare a meal for them. Invites them to sit down and, and rest. It was just commonplace for Abraham. And just as it was commonplace for Christians back then, it should be commonplace for us to show hospitality consistently even to those who are not familiar with us. It's to be such a part of us that we are having people and being hospitable to people no matter who they are. Now, I want to issue a caveat to that. Okay? I'm not saying the Bible says you invite anybody and whoever in. Okay? I don't think that's... I think there's some wisdom that needs to be shown. We do have more options today for caring people than those back in the New Testament. Okay? We have hotels. We have, to use more modern terminology, Airbnbs. We have, we have different options today. Yet I'm afraid, and this, this is a condemnation, if, I don't know if it was a condemnation, but this is a, a poor outlook on my own part. We seem to be reluctant to use those options because we're selfish and we're not others-oriented. When we see someone in need and we see someone in any places, say, how many times do we go, well, somebody else will take care of it. They can go to the government. Government has housing for them. That wasn't an option back in that day. That wasn't something that people could readily turn to. Because it wasn't available. And so you and I as believers today should have the mindset of being hospitable to whoever we meet. Now it may mean that you pay for a hotel for that person for a night. Or two nights, whatever you decide or you can afford. It may mean that you are able to, to meet some needs that that person has. I know my folks, when I was growing up in southwest Minnesota, there were a few times we did have some strangers in our home, more or less, so people who needed a place to eat just as um, in our town there was a, a program that was set up for people to stay that would pay for a, a night stay but they need a meal and sometimes they were over at a house eating meals maybe that for you you just provide a meal and and someone else provides a hotel room or for for a brief stay there are more options that we have today for caring for people and we need to use them now it, it, again there all of us have bills all of us have things that are, are pressing our pocketbook. But that does not negate the need for us to be hospitable, even to strangers. So let me ask you this question. Let me ask myself this question. Are you and I in the habit of being hospitable to all regardless of your relationship with them? 
Are you and I, uh, for, the, for the stranger who walks in our doors on a Sunday morning, are we, are we practicing hospitality, reaching into our resources and being a, a help to them? Or are we picking and choosing? Oh yes, I'll help that person, but I won't help that person. And again, it, it, a lot of it is wisdom, a lot of it is reluctance, on our, a lot of it is uh, just a choice on our part, I understand that. When we see an opportunity to be hospitable, are we taking advantage of it? We have the resources. You have something. You have an opportunity. Are we taking advantage of that? Or are we just letting it pass us by? He says, don't forget to show hospitality. And are we willing to do that regardless of whether we know the person or not? It's really easy for us to be hospitable to those we know, Right? To those we have a relationship with, it's even harder to those we don't know. And so are we willing to go on both ends of the spectrum? Because we're supposed to be hospitable. Third requirement of a well-run race or efficient race is we are intentional in our care for others. Verse 3, remember the prisoners of his, of his, as if chained with them, those who are mistreated since you are ourselves you yourselves are in this body also. He says we are to purposely think about those in difficult circumstances. Remember means to, means to give careful consideration to, think of, keep in mind. The idea behind this word is an imperative. It's, it's not an imperative in the original language, but the, the grammar suggests that the force of the word is an imperative. And that's to be continually remembering, not forgetting who? Those in prison. And, and again, we need to go back to context for this a little bit. Prisons would be for anyone who committed an offense against the government, just like today. But back in the New Testament, this included Christians who promoted one God alone, which was contrary to Roman thinking, who had many gods. Religious persecution was rampant during this time, and therefore the need to remember those in prison was even more important. The prisons back in those days weren't as comfortable as today. They had some, some just dark holes with barely any food and water. History records for us that Christians were in the practice of consistently going to prisons to meet the, those, meet the need of those in there. And some commentators expand the idea of prisoners to everyone, not just Christians. And I, I think there's some legitimacy to that. Taking into consideration the poor quality of prisons back in that time frame, the author of Hebrews is extending that requirement, um, that influence, if you will, to those who are not Christians. So I think, consequently, the responsibility for us today is to not only remember those who are in prison and, and who may be justly in prison for different things, but also those who are enduring hard struggles, whether it be health, financial, or relationship. One example that I came with, uh, up with as I was thinking through this a little bit was caring for those who have lost loved ones. We've had that happen recently in the past several months. Uh, I can name names. I'm not going to do that right now. But what I've noticed myself is that it's really, we're really good at caring for widows and orphans in the moment. When the person's passed, when there's just this great, deep sorrow Thinking about the funeral we just had recently, a young woman, 26, passes away, leaves behind three kids, the oldest of which now no, no longer has a father or mother. 
We're really good in the moment. It's those week, two weeks, three weeks, months, years that we're not so good at. We're supposed to care for those who are struggling in difficult situations, and that means we go beyond just the moment. That means we're checking in with them consistently over the time. And again, there's, there's, there's our responsibility to do that. There's their responsibility to respond. But brothers and sisters, he's saying we're, we're to remember. We're to purposely call those people to mind so that when we're thinking, through, we're going through a day and all of a sudden we think about so-and-so who's just lost a loved one, that should prompt us to do something. And not just sit back and just let the thought pass by. Because he says our remembrance goes beyond just thinking to identifying. He says as if chained with them. That means to, the word means to literally think of yourself as bound with them. So going beyond just thinking about the person, but identifying with them and their struggle and using that information to minister to their needs. It's not going there and just binding in in the rhetoric of the book of Hebrews. It's not going and just making sure you're chained up with them. The idea is thinking about them, remembering them in their situation, what it must be like to go through, and then using that information to minister to them. Our identification with those who are suffering and going through difficult circumstances is realized through our sympathy and efforts to sit with them in their hardship, ministering whenever and however we can. That's what you and I are called to do. When we hear the phone call of a, of a spouse who's passed away, our first response should be, yes, to pray. I'll pray for you, but our also should be, hey, what can I do for you? To, to literally sit with someone. I can't tell you how many times I've literally sat with someone and that's all they've asked. Just sit. Listen. Scripture says we are to, to mourn with those who mourn and rejoice with those who rejoice. It doesn't matter what situation is going through that person's life. Our efforts must be to sit with them in their hardship, identify with them in their suffering, minister to them whenever and however we can. And pastor, you say, I can't do much. He's not saying, here's, here's the level you need to achieve. Right? He's saying, here's the mindset you and I need to have, and here's the action we need to take. It could be that all you do is take that person out for coffee and listen to their sorrow. It could be that you go have them over to your house for a meal, and you listen to their trouble. Oftentimes, i found that's all people want. Right? People don't want you to just try to help them solve their problems, although that's my tendency. Ask my wife. She says, I'm a problem solver. Every time she brings a problem to me, I've got to solve it. She says, I don't want you to solve my problems. I just want you to listen to me. That's what we can do. And sometimes it may help them solve their problems. It may, it may go to that extent. But for us as believers, we've got to go from just thinking, remembering, to doing. What does James say? Faith without works is what? It's dead. we got to put action to our faith. And the author, he was saying, if we're going to run a well-run race, we need to put feet to our faith. And notice what he also says. He says, remembering those in difficult circumstances includes those who are being mistreated. I'm using the New King James translation. Perhaps you're using the uh, same one or maybe a new, uh, King James. 
it says it has the little hyphens there, those who are being mistreated. I think that's a little bit of a, um, a miscommunication on the translator's part. It's not, a sep- it's not a describing those who are in prison. It's, it's creating a different category. Those who are being mistreated. Because the word mistreated means to be tormented. It means to suffer. And the idea is someone who is suffering, whether it be unjustly or justly, most of the time it's unjustly, that we're still supposed to minister to them. Listen to Jesus' words regarding this. From Matthew chapter 25, verses 35 through 40. Jesus' context here is this, Jesus is talking about, here's what's going to happen at the end. Then the king will say to those who are on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, and inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me food. I was thirsty, and you gave me drink. I was a stranger, and you welcomed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you visited me. I was in prison, and you came to me. Then the righteous will answer him, saying, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you? Or thirsty and give you drink? And when did we see you a stranger and welcome you, or naked and clothe you? And when did we see you sick or in prison and visit you? And the king will answer them, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brothers, you did it to me. So no matter the situation, whether it's someone in prison, whether someone going through a rough circumstance, or someone who's suffering injustice, or someone's being mistreated by society or family or other forms of ill treatment, we must remember and act. Because in caring for others, look with me, we acknowledge our potential sufferings. So since you yourselves are in the same body, or in, 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 are, you are, since you yourselves are in the body also, it, it points the reader's attention to the physical body, not the spiritual body. Someone looked at this as being the church. Uh, John Calvin, the famous reformer, kind of looked at this passage and said this talks about believers in the church, you know, same, same body, so it's referring to other believers. I don't think that's what's going on. I think he's talking about the physical body. Everyone has one. And we all could potentially suffer, right? And the purpose of this phrase, the author is using this to remind us that we are not exempt from suffering as the children of God. It happens to all of us, and therefore we are to specifically reach out to those who are suffering and minister to them in any way we can. We could be going through the same thing. We could, we could experience the same thing. And how would, this is kind of the, the golden rule a little bit. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. If I'm in that position, how would I want to be treated? How would I want my needs to be met? Because I have the same potential of suffering. I could be going through that same grief that that widow or widower is going through. I could be going through that same grief that an orphan is going through. How do I want to be treated? What would I need in that moment? And then acting on that. So are you and I willing to care intentionally for others who are suffering? The author of Hebrews mentions this commendation at the end of chapter 10, verse 34. Listen to what he says. And again, I think here's a little bit of a a mistranslation on on the New King James and King James translator's part. I think it's, for you, I had compassion on those who in prison is rather than is to be the statement. For you had compassion on those in, in prison and joyfully accepted the plundering of your goods, knowing that you have a better and enduring possession for yourselves in heaven. These believers whom the author of Hebrews was writing to 
had the practice of visiting those in prison, showing compassion to them, intentionally helping them, and are we doing the same? Are we making that phone call? Are we, are we, are we scheduling that appointment? Reaching out to that person who's just lost a loved one and, and trying to minister to their needs. Not, not in a big, grand, verbose way, but just in simple things. Identifying with them and serving them, remembering them as we are called to do. Fourth requirement of an efficiently run race is that we value the institution of marriage. Now again, marriage in the Scriptures is one man and one woman for life. Which is in that spirit, he says, marriage is honorable among all in the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Marriage is an honorable establishment. The word honorable means to be held in honor. The emphasis being of respect or value. Think of, think of something valuable in your life that you, you treasure. Um, for me, outside of my family, my family is the most valuable thing for me. is sports memorabilia. Uh, I like collecting signed autographs of favorite players and favorite teams. I've got recently, and I'll, I'll, I'll bring them sometime and show you, uh, three signed jerseys uh, that I have. One of them, I won't mention the other two because then you'll despise me. Uh, one of them is a signed jersey by Jack Morris, the 1991 uh, World Series MVP. Uh, it's a signed jersey from him. I'll give you the website if you ever want to look at it and see some of the deals that I got. Um, and so my plan is to display that. Uh, some, some of them will be in my office. I've got some of them already here. You can go and look at them. Uh, but I love sports memorabilia. I cherish it. I, I, I put it and preserve it, take care of it, because I value it. And that's the, the same level of care that we care for things that we enjoy is the same level of care that we're supposed to show towards marriage. It's been intact for thousands of years and, and has been undervalued and insulted, and we should value it. Marriage has been disrespected, in, in just to give you a few examples, through through, through single people living together. Some of you say, well, well, that's not really disrespecting your marriage. Yeah, it is. If you're living together with a, someone in a relationship, and that includes all the forms that belong with marriage, you're disrespecting it because you're not going through it. Marriage is supposed to be between one man, one man, one woman for life, and marriage means you, you take part in everything together. And if you do single people living together, then you're not taking part in life together. You're just living separate lives. That's not how it's supposed to be. We can think of, uh, of, of marriage being extended to those who it is not for. Thinking especially of the homosexual movement. In the past 20, 30 years, our country has gone the way of saying, okay, you can get married. We think it's okay when God says it's not. Marriage has been undervalued and, and not appreciated and insulted by divorce. Over 50% of marriages today end in divorce. I think that number is even higher. And that number is just as bad among Christians as among non-Christians. They don't value marriage as they should. And again, I know there are certain extenuating circumstances, but that's not valuing marriage. That's just insulting it. I, I don't want to live with you anymore, so we're going to get a divorce. That's not how marriage works. And the responsibility of holding marriage in honor is for everyone, regardless of whether married or single. Notice he says there, among all. And I, I think 
The phrase is, among all people. So regardless of where you're at in life, we are all to value marriage in the way we talk about it and the way we interact with it. No one is exempt from this obligation. So whether you're single, married, widowed, whatever it might be, you and I are to value marriage. When we see others across the room who are married, we're to not degrade them for their status. We're to value what God has ordained. And then he moves on and he says this, sexual intimacy in marriage is to be pure. And you say, oh, pastor, now he's going to talk about that term. Well, God talks about it. And he says in the bed undefiled, the word bed is a euphemism for sex and engagement in sexual relationships. And so what the author is doing and God is telling us that both the marriage relationship and that sexual intimacy within marriage is to be held in honor, both by the people who partake of it and the people who observe it. The word undefiled means to be pure. Not only is sex to be valued, but it's to be pure as God intended it to be. If you read at the end of Genesis chapter 2, what does it say about Adam and Eve? They were both naked and not ashamed. That's the way it's supposed to be, right? Yet through porn, divorce, affairs, and other forms of sexual perversion, sexual intimacy in marriage has become a dirty idea rather than a pure act. can't tell you how many times we've interacted with young people and, and seen some writings and, and people are saying that viewing what God intended as pure sexual intimacy as dirty rather than pure. God intended it to be pure from the beginning. They were not ashamed. But now because of sin, because of our own sexual perversion in our hearts, we've made it a dirty idea. And God says it's to be pure. It's to be held in honor. And God will judge those who abhor marriage. But fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. The word fornicators means to engage in sexual activity outside of marriage. The word adulterers refers to those who are unfaithful to their spouses. Both groups of people violate the covenant of marriage by adding someone else to it. And these words are descriptive. You know, a person who is a fornicator or adulterer describes those who people are active in those sins. They actively participate in them. Whether they're married and they, and they have an affair, whether they're just a single person who just does whatever they want with whomever they want, whether in person or online, that describes their habit. And God will judge them. The word judge means to emphasizes God's judgment in both a moral and judicial sense. God judges sin, and His judgment is just and worthy of implementation. He will judge. He will pronounce judgment and consequences. And notice that His judgment is certain. God will judge. Not God could judge, or God might judge. God will judge. And how many times do people who have engaged in affairs and other forms of, of sexual perversion have said, oh, I don't, I, I've got my get-out-of-jail-free card. I got, I'm saved. I don't have to worry about consequences. Mm, no, you do. God will judge. God will pass judgment. And we need to be aware of that. 
Because by doing so, those people abhor marriage. They abhor the value that God instilled. So let me ask you, are you valuing the topic of marriage and sexual intimacy in your life? The way you talk about it in daily conversation, too many, I think in our world today, we see a lot of people degrading marriage, the way they talk about it, in, in from conversations in the, forgive my illustration, but conversations in the bar, to public places, to they make fun of it. Guys, more often than not, make fun of their wife. They call her, they call her the old lady at home. They, they degrade her the way they talk. The way you talk about it, the way you experience it, for those of you who are married this morning, are you valuing it? Are you honoring it? Or are you just looking at it as a dirty thing? Something that doesn't have any value. For those of you who are single, and I, I was single for 34 years. I know what it's like. Are you valuing it in your life? Right? And the way you talk about it, and the way you, you uh, view it. Are you valuing that? Are you, are you engaging in activities that would bring down your view of marriage. We all need to be valuing this topic, especially in our world today. Last requirement for a well-run race, we'll go through this really quickly, is we are content with our possessions. Verses 5 and 6, let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with the things as such you have. Contentment is to dominate our lives. The word conduct means the way we live describes how we, how we live our lives. Without covetousness, without covetousness means to be not a lover of money. It doesn't say don't, don't have money. It says don't be a lover of money. That's how we're to be known. We're to be content with what God has given us. The word content means to, to, to be satisfied. The, the grammar there is an imperative. This is a command. No option here. And content with what? The things, the such things as you have, or the things that you have is a better way to say that. It means things that are available for your use, whether it be your finances, whether it be your possessions. And the present tense grammar points to, not, to current, not future, possessions. It's not something you could have in the future, or you might have in the future. It says, be content with what you have now. What does Paul say in Philippians chapter 4, verse 11? I have learned in whatsoever state therewith to be content. And Paul was in some bad places, yet he was content with what God had given him. Not with what God could give him or might have given him, with what God hadn't given him in the moment. And God's promises, notice lastly, God's promises reinforce the ability to be content. He uses two Old Testament quotes here to reinforce the point. First one comes from Joshua 1.5, where God promises presence with Joshua as he takes over leadership from Moses, a, a big shoes to fill. God promises that he would be with Joshua. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Second quote comes from either Psalm 27.1 or 1.18.6, which we read this morning. In any case, the point still made, God's provision is greater than any difficulty man can come up with. So when we boldly say, Lord is my helper, I will not fear, what can man do to me? No matter what man throws our way, whether deserved or undeserved, God is our helper, therefore we will not fear. Whether I get debt thrown my way or financial difficulties of, of other kinds or whatever it might be, I can be content because God is my helper. And I can boldly say that. The word boldly means to be certain. 
Be confident. And the, the, the grammar there is ongoing confidence, uh, continuing confidence. So knowing that God has promised His presence and provision enables us to be confidently be content because of Him. Not because of what I can do. Not because of my ability to be content. I can be confident because what God has promised me, His presence and His help. And therefore, because of those two things, I can be content. So are you content with what God has given you? Again, God may have not given you, God has probably has not given you a lot this morning. Maybe, maybe he has, maybe he hasn't. Are you content with that? I gotta tell you, as, as a thinking, especially in in my single days, um, I wasn't as content as I could be. I wanted to be married, I wanted to have kids, and I wanted all these different things, and, and I, at times I was discontent. And that's a disobedience to Scripture. I'm to be content with such things as I have. Are you content with the things you have this morning? Are you content with your, your place in life, your lot in life for right now? Are you content with the, the difficulties that you have, as hard as they may be, and the, the physical things you're going through? Are you content with what you have? Or are you trying to get more and more and more? Because Scripture says that philosophy doesn't work. We are to be content with what God has given us. If I do not practice good umpiring mechanics during a baseball or softball game, I will not be at my best. I'll, I'll at best be poor. And so likewise, if we do not embrace the requirements for our well-run race of faith, we too will not perform as well as we could. What are those requirements? Very briefly, we are loving to our brothers and sisters in Christ. Regardless of who they are, we are, we are hospitable in all situations. Regardless if we know the person or not, we are intentional in our care for others. We go beyond just thinking to doing. We value the institution of marriage. We make sure it's held in honor. And we are content with our possessions, with what God has given us. So this week, as we continue to run the race, let's make sure we are doing what is necessary to run it well until we reach the end.